We're finishing up John chapter 16 this morning. So if you want to turn there to uh, chapter 16. Yes, I did. I'm going to break you before you ship out. So um, we're going to be picking up in chapter 16, verse 25 through the end of the chapter and uh, just the, the, the whole recap here. Jesus has been talking to the disciples about their future without him being present with them. Uh, he's told them that people were going to persecute, were going to kill them because they were his followers. He's told them that he would be going to the Father. He's told them that it's to their advantage so that he could send the uh, Holy Spirit to comfort, to teach, to encourage them. And he told them on multiple occasions that his desire is for their joy to be complete. So, as he gets to the end of this discourse, um, these two paragraphs, at least that's how they're formatted in, in my translation here, is two paragraphs. Uh, verses 25 through 28 and then 29 through the end of the chapter or each a paragraph. These last two paragraphs that we have are the last teaching that Jesus does before his death. Think about that. These are the last things that he teaches the disciples before he passes away, before he's crucified. Um, now, if we, we put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, what he says here could have been very discouraging for them to hear uh, because of the time frame in which he spoke it, because of the, the consequences and the, the circumstances in which he's talking to them. But it's also that should give us courage and boldness as we do what he's told us we need to be doing. So I'm going to have everybody stand up this morning, if you can, and I'm going to read John 16, starting in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name... And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your son, thank you for his teaching. Thank you for preserving it for us so that we can hear and, and understand what he said to the disciples and, and we can allow his words to change the way we interact with the world. 
Father, help us to be good students of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, please. So he's, he's kind of recapping all the stuff that he's been saying to them, and he says, I have been talking to you in figures of speech. I have been using metaphors. I have been using similes. I have been using parables. I have been using examples. I have not been talking to you plainly about things. Now, why would Jesus do this? Any any ideas why Jesus would use figures of speech instead of just speaking plainly to them? They had a hard time understanding when he did speak plainly. Remember when he said the, the first time at the Caesarea Philippi Confession where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'll be handed over to the Gentiles, I will be crucified, and I will rise again on the third day. And Peter says, no. Okay, well, if they ain't going to listen to him speaking plainly anyways, why not use figures of speech? Also, it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around things dealing with the nature of God and His kingdom because it is so different from our experience. Everything about the kingdom is different from our experience. There are things that we have to use. The, there's, there's a teaching principle that I was taught way back 14 years ago when I started uh, doing the instructor thing that, that is the principle of going from the known to the unknown. Okay, for example, think about when you're learning your, your mathematic facts in elementary school. Now, for some of us, we have to think even further back. I mean, we got to go back to the Wayback Machine when they were still using abacuses and, and chalkboards for each student, right? But what is the first mathematical fact that you have to teach children? Yeah. For addition, you have to teach that if I have one and I add another one to it, that, that makes two, right? Okay? From there... You can use the same principle to teach that child that if I have two and I add one to it, I get three, right? So that's going from the known to the unknown. That's why math books for elementary kids use examples like fruit. If I have one apple and I have somebody give me another apple, how many apples do I have? (sighs) Yeah. So this idea of going from the known to the unknown, when Jesus is talking about, uh, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the, the woman given birth, right? This is a known phenomenon. Even if the disciples were not married, they had probably known a person, a young woman who was pregnant, who was going through all the travails of childbirth. If they had not seen it, they had heard about it. And then they see the woman with her child. And all the sorrow and the pain and all that sort of stuff is gone. And and the idea that the human race is still propagating, obviously, that means that that pain has been forgotten. So Jesus uses a known phenomenon to teach us an unknown phenomenon. Like the idea that they would have sorrow when Jesus died, but then as he was raised, their sorrow would be replaced with a joy that could not be taken away. So from the known to the unknown. 
But he says, I've been using all these figures of speech, but the day is coming when I'm not going to use figures of speech. I'm going to speak to you plainly. I'm going to tell you plainly about the Father. I'm going to not shroud things in examples and metaphor. I'm going to tell you things as they are. How would we be able to understand things as they are? Think about the previous couple of passages that we've looked at. How are we going to understand the things of the kingdom? Because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us to understand the things that we can't understand on our own. Now, there's another thing that I want you to notice in this. He's been telling them, I'm getting ready to be crucified. I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be dead You're going to see me for a little while, then you're not going to see me for a little while, then you're going to see me for a little while more. And then you're not going to see me at all because I'm going back to the Father. Right? So, here he says that the day is coming when I'm going to speak to you plainly about the Father. What are the implications of that statement? He's just told them that he's going to be dead But the day is coming when I'm going to speak to you plainly. How's a dead guy going to speak to him? He's talking about his post-resurrection experiences and and appearances where he's going to sit and talk to them. And he's going to teach them. Think about the road to Emmaus. Right? you got the two disciples that are leaving Jerusalem. They're all downtrodden. Their, Their heads are hung and they're depressed and everything. And all of a sudden Jesus shows up and starts talking to them along the road. And when they finally get to the house, they stop at for the night and they break bread. Jesus prays over it. And all of a sudden their eyes are opened and they go, that was Jesus. And they drop their dinner and they run back to Jerusalem to tell everybody. Jesus is giving them an indication, a promise. This does not mark the end. This does not mean that it's over. There's more to the Christian life than just this here and now. At some point after he dies, he's going to be back with them to teach them. I have to be honest, in my humanity, I can sympathize with the disciples because Jesus is giving them some really confusing messages considering their understanding of things. We can look at this because we're on the the 2,000 years after the resurrection, right? We can read this and say, man, how could they be so dense? But I can tell you where they're at, they're not dense. Jesus is talking about stuff that is so far beyond their experience, they have no way to understand. Then he says, when that day comes, the disciples will be asking things of God in Jesus' authority. We looked at that a little bit last week, right? In the name of Jesus, it's not the, it, that is not the quarter that we have to put into the God vending machine to make sure that we get our prayers answered. That's not how this works. Praying in the name means praying in the authority. That's the difference between disciple and apostle. A disciple is a student. An apostle is one who is sent out with authority. When the disciples go out and they cast out demons in Jesus' name, they're casting out demons not by saying in Jesus' name, but because they are acting in the authority that He has given them. 
Why is that a big deal to us? Well, think about Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus says, all authority where has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. All authority, all encompassing, has been given to me. Go, therefore, I'm sending you in that authority to make disciples and teach them everything that I've commanded you, and I am with you to the end of the age. Jesus goes along with us. He's not walking next to me. I don't. I can't reach out and put my arm around him. I can't turn to him and say, what do I do about this person? But he's there with me in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says we're going to be praying and asking because we have that authority that he has delegated to us. And he clarifies that he's not going to be the one asking on their behalf. It's not that I'm going to pray to Jesus and Jesus is going to ask the Father. It's that I'm going to ask the Father because I belong to Jesus. Do you understand that distinction? If that doesn't mean, if that doesn't have a whole lot of significance, okay, now, number one, um, I, I'm, we, we've done enough study on the, the, the history of the church that I think most everybody probably has at least heard. When I hear Jesus says, I'm not going to pray on your behalf, I'm not going to ask on your behalf, my mind goes to the idea of the, the Roman Catholic practice of the saints. Right? The Roman Catholic practice of praying to the saints comes from the feudal system of government, which is when the Roman Catholic Church came to power. Even though they will tell you that they've been around, they are the original church, they're not. During the feudal system, during the, the 4th, 5th, 6th century, as the Roman Catholic Church is gaining in power and gaining in influence, the idea of having a patron in the royal court permeated the church. See, if I'm a peasant and I want to get something from the ruling class, I have to have a patron to carry my message to the ruling class. I have to have somebody who is of a high enough status that they can actually go to the court, not a courtroom, but the court of the uh, nobility, to petition for the king on my behalf. Well, that makes sense in a human level, right? Because a peasant wouldn't be allowed to walk into the court of the king and say, yo, king, hey, can I have... Off with his head, that's what you can have, right? So this idea permeated the church during the Dark Ages... So that if I have to have a patron to go to the king, how much more would I have to have a saintly person, somebody who lived a particularly righteous life, petition God on my behalf? This is where the practice of praying to the saints came from, right? Because the saints are the people who particularly lived a righteous life. Many of them have miracles attributed to them. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things required for the canonization of sainthood is that a person has a miracle attributed to them. Like Mother Teresa and Pope John Paul II are a couple of the most recent additions to the saintly canon of the Catholic Church. Jesus here says, 
I'm not going to be petitioning on your behalf. You're going to be petitioning on your behalf. Why? How? How is that going to work? He says that we're going to be doing that because God the Father himself loves you. We can go to God in prayer because he loves us. Why does he love us? Because we love his son. Because we belong to his son. We we are his. And Jesus says, and because we believe that he came from God. Now there's another thing here that if, if this whole asking things directly of God doesn't strike you as something special, in Judaism, first century, all the way till now, this has not changed. The vast majority of Jewish prayers do not have any form of petition. They do not ask God for anything. Jewish prayers are prayers of thanksgiving. Even if they are in the pit of despair, even if they are mourning, they are thanking God for His provision. That is almost 100% all there is to a Jewish prayer. Jesus says, when I am no longer with you, you're going to be asking God for things directly. Jesus asks God for things. In, in fact, when we hit chapter 17, if I were to ask you all to recite the Lord's Prayer, you would probably start with the whole, Our Father who art in heaven, right? That is not the Lord's Prayer. That is the model prayer that He gave to the disciples. The Lord's Prayer is the entirety of chapter 17 of John's Gospel. That's Jesus' prayer. And in Jesus' prayer, He asks God for a lot of things that are in line with God's will to protect us from the evil one, not to pull us from the world, but to give us boldness so that we can do the ministry. And we'll look at that over the next couple of weeks because I think that is probably one of the biggest passages to cause the church to get off of her hindquarters and to do what we've been commanded to do. So Jesus says... You're going to ask God to do stuff in my authority and God's going to answer those prayers because He loves you. He loves us because of faith. And because of that faith, God will answer the prayer of the believer. We don't have to bargain. We don't need an intermediary. We don't need the saint to improve the possibility of God hearing our prayers. You know, we we can follow that Catholic idea of the saints, right? Why do they pray to Mary? Well, because if Jesus is going to listen to somebody, it's probably going to be his mother, right? So if if he's going to listen to his mother, then we need to pray and ask her to tell him to do what we need him to do. Jesus says no. The prayer of the Christian, the prayer of the true disciple is the prayer that lines up with God's will. Remember how Jesus said, if you abide in me and my commands abide in you, if we're obedient to the things he commands us to do, if we're obedient to the things that he has called us to do and led us to do, if we have been obedient to those things, 
then we're not going to pray selfishly. I know there's a lot of people who say, well, is it selfish of me to pray that a loved one is, is healed from illness? No, I don't necessarily think that's a selfish prayer. Does God always answer that with a yes? No, He doesn't. Because that's one of those places where we don't know what His will is. Scripture never tells us that His will is for everybody to be healthy and free of disease. In fact, it tells us that disease is the natural consequence of what happens in this world because of sin. So, if we pray and pay attention to what Jesus has commanded us to do, right? Then God answers. If we allow His commands to live in and through us, then He answers. We cannot pray sinfully or selfishly or self-centeredly and expect God to answer that prayer with a resounding, Sure! I cannot pray for there to be a billion dollars in my pickup truck when I get done preaching and expect God to say yes. That prayer is not a prayer that's God-honoring. Now, again, I have to say, these disciples, they understand very little of what Jesus is talking about. And you see that in verse 29 here. They're like, oh, well, now you're speaking plainly. Now you're telling it clear. Now you're not using figures of speech. That's how we know that you don't need to be questioned and you know everything. Because you're laying it out on the line. It's almost like the rest of Jesus' ministry didn't have any impact on their thinking. It's like they didn't have any thought process towards what was actually going on. Hey, darling, would you? Thank you. Um... It's like they have long-term memory loss. The last two years and 51 weeks have meant nothing. They didn't learn from what he had to say. They didn't let what he said change their thought processes at all. Isn't it a good thing that we don't have that problem? <laughs> yeah. we, we have a hard, term, a hard time having what we hear this morning impacting us by the time we hit the end of the parking lot. And I'm, I'm part of that we. This is human nature. We do the same thing that they did. And so we have to read Jesus' response. In verse 31, Jesus answered them, Oh, so now you believe. So all that other stuff that I did, you know, feeding the 5,000, healing the leper, raising the dead, all that sort of stuff, didn't really teach you anything. Now you believe. Got it. Your faith is super strong right now because you understand what I've been saying to you. Really. Let me tell you what's going to happen. And it's going to happen tonight. Because he says, the hour is coming. Indeed, it is here that you're going to scatter like roaches in a room when you turn the light switch on. Think about Jesus' arrest in the garden. Right? He's got Peter, James, and John with him. His three closest friends and the disciples are with him in the garden. They've fallen asleep. Not once. Not twice. Three times. They've fallen asleep while Jesus is praying. When he comes to them the third time, he says, The time is here. 
they step out from behind the wall in the garden, and here's a mob of people with pitchforks and torches, swords, and everything else to arrest Jesus. And as soon as he is taken into custody, James takes off, John takes off, Peter follows him. Peter follows him to the home of the high priest where he proceeds to deny him three times and then he takes off. Where are the other eight? They're not mentioned again until the post-resurrection appearance in the upper room. They're already scattered. They took off. They left because they were afraid. You're each going to go to your own home and act like none of this ever happened. You're going to deny having known me because you fear for your lives. You're going to leave me alone in the moment of my death. When Jesus hung on the cross, who was there? John. Not Peter, not James, none of the other eight disciples were there. John was there. But Jesus says, even in that, I'm not going to be alone. I'm not going to be alone because the Father is with me. Jesus had that perfect fellowship with the Father in His ministry here on earth. As He prayed, He knew God was hearing Him. As He struggled and as He suffered, He knew God was with Him. All the way up to the cross, He knew God the Father is with me. And for a brief moment, as He's hanging on the cross and the weight of the sins of His people is on His shoulders, that fellowship is broken for a brief instant. As Jesus becomes sin for us. And that's when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not to say that the Father abandoned the Son. The Father and the Son have always been and will always be in perfect unity. But Jesus in His humanity, for that brief moment hanging on the cross, felt the weight of a sin that He had never experienced. See, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around this because from our earliest, earliest possible memory, we have sin on our account. <laughs> Children are born sinful. Sin comes out of that sin nature. And it does not take, there is no point at which a child all right, there is a point at which a child does not consciously choose right from wrong. That lasts for approximately four days after birth. Okay? Because it takes about that long for a child to realize that if I cry a little bit louder, somebody's going to come pick me up. If I scream just a little bit harder... I'm going to get whatever it is that I want. They might not know what they want. They might be responding out of instinct. I get that. But they are not an animal that has blind instincts that they follow. They have a consciousness. It might not be fully developed. But from our earliest possible 
We are already separated from God because of our sin nature. We don't know what it's like to not have that wall of sin between us and the Father. Jesus never knew that until that moment on the cross when the weight of our sins was placed on Him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus and His humanity no longer felt that fellowship with God. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? That's huge. That blows my mind. But instead of continuing to chide them or or judge them because of what's going to happen, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. Just like telling them that his desire was for them to be joyful, to have a joy that could not be taken away, he wants them to have peace. My peace I give to you, a peace that the world doesn't understand. There's a a part in which that peace is peace with God. It is that restored relationship we can have. And when we don't feel that peace with God, it's not because God went somewhere, it's because we did. That joy that we have is a joy that we have to choose to experience. Like I said last week, we've got to choose not to be bitter and hateful over circumstances and situations in our life that cause us to lose that joyfulness. We've got to be joyful. We've got to choose joy. We've got to choose peace. It's already ours. We've got to live like we're at peace. We've got to live like we are at peace with God. We have to live at peace with other people. Nothing about this is easy. Nothing about this comes natural. Nothing about this is something we can do on our own. This all requires God's help. When all of this stuff comes to pass and the rawness of the emotions settle down, the disciples are terrified. Are we going to be executed like Jesus? Are we going to be be tried illegally like He was? Are we going to be hung on a cross? Are we going to be scourged? Are we going to have our families turn against us? When all of this comes to their mind, the disciples would be able to hear Jesus' promises in their mind. I hear a lot of people talk about the promises in Scripture, especially the the Word of Faith movement, the folks that are are very uh, name and claim. I hear them talk a lot about, well, well, right here it says that that Jesus wants us to be healed. and, And here it says Jesus wants us to be Prosperous, and, and here the Bible says that God wants us to... Here in, in the upper room, Jesus tells us very clearly what He desires for us. He desires peace, and He desires joy. Those are not circumstantial. Acts 
And the other thing that he promises is right here at the end of verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have turmoil. You will have conflict. You will have all kinds of grief. Because this world is not a place that is friendly to the followers of Christ. It is not. Jesus says, but don't be afraid because I have overcome the world. The world's victory is not final. Even if, even if for the disciples, Peter was crucified upside down. Others were beheaded or crucified or stoned to death or fill in the blank. Even if the world should kill you, Jesus says, their victory is not final. That's the part that I said should be encouraging for us. Of course, we have to get to the point where we are being bold enough and we are being Christ-like enough that it causes the world to notice that we're different. Remember, Jesus said that if we were of the world, the world would accept us? Well, if the world accepts us, that's because we look a lot like the world. Okay. Uh The world is not a place that's friendly to followers of Christ. If the world is friendly to followers of Christ, we have to ask the question, are the followers of Christ enough like Christ? If we're not, then we're not going to have peace. We're not going to have joy because we're going to be living like the world that's at odds with the Father.